You're listening to the Nachum Siegel Network. This is a uh, new edition of the OU Jewish Reaction Program, which uh, uh, we have for you every single Tuesday, 9 a.m. here at the Nachum Siegel Network. I uh, thank you for tuning in to uh, NachumSiegel.com and the NSN app. If you don't have the NSN app yet, if you're listening on your computer and you don't have the app yet for iPhone or Android, make sure to install it as soon as possible. You get to comment on whatever you're listening to uh, with the app on the home screen, and it is an amazing way to tune in to all of our programming 24 hours a day. And check out our uh, presence on social media, including Facebook, where our uh, Nahum Siegel Network Facebook update page is simply entitled Nahum Siegel Network. Like that page, and you'll know exactly what's happening uh, at any point during the day during our programming. Uh, OU Jewish Reaction Show, and we welcome Dr. Raphael Medoff. He's author of 16 books about Jewish history, former associate editor of the scholarly journal American Jewish History and director of the David Wyman Institute for Holocaust Studies, which focuses on America's response to the Holocaust. We get an opportunity to discuss the history of the OU on this edition of the OU Jewish Reaction. Dr. Medoff, welcome to the Nahum Siegel Network. Good morning. Thank you for having me. A pleasure to have you, and thank you for joining us. Um, so the OU starts when? How long ago was the organization founded? 1898. And why was it founded? It was partially in response to the expansion and rise of Reform Judaism in America, and partly a general sense among the small but growing American Orthodox community that they needed to get more organized, that they needed to be um, up-to-date, not just a bunch of scattered individual shoals, but an, but an organized force that could actually serve as a as an important voice in the American Jewish community. And do we know which is the first OU-affiliated shul in the country? I don't know that offhand. Um, but they all faced a very um, difficult and complicated situation uh, in looking at the American Jewish landscape. And that is that um, most American Jews were very far from religious observance. Some were affiliated with the Reform Movement. There was no conservative movement as such in those days. Uh, but many Jews were simply, had just simply moved away from their traditional roots. When they came from Eastern Europe, they had, um, they had looked at the New World as also being a new, an entirely new life for them. And so this was a, a struggle uh, by a very small faction of the, of the American Jewish community to assert the validity and the vibrancy of orthodoxy at a time when really all the factors around them and all the circumstances were uh, pushing against uh, maintaining traditional observance. Is there a, I mean, I assume there must have been then a great influence of the European jury. I assume the original leaders were either from Europe or one generation removed, am I right? Yes, but it was an interesting mix. Um, Professor Jeffrey Gorak, who is the leading historian of American Orthodox Judaism, divides them into two categories. He calls them resistors and accommodators. So there were a certain number of Orthodox rabbis in America who were resistors. That is, they resisted the idea of what we would call Americanization. They didn't want to be using English in their drushas in shul on Shabbat. And, um, and they didn't think there was a need to modernize um, Jewish practice in any way. Um, and, but there were others who, who we might call accommodators, and that is they felt that within the parameters of halacha, it was possible to make aesthetic, stylistic, uh, and other types of adjustments that would make traditional Judaism more appealing, especially to a younger generation that was drifting away from Jewish uh, observance. Were some of those accommodations met with more opposition than others? 
Well, it, it really resulted in a split in the Orthodox community, and there was a, the group that we're, I'm, I'm referring to as resistors ended up forming their own organization known as the Agudas Harabanim, um, which still exists today, by the way, although it's, it's a very small organization now, and, and um, it, it's more that group is more widely known as being associated associated with Agudas Yisrael. Um, but for the accommodators, they're the ones who established um, the OU and who became the vanguard of what we call modern orthodoxy in America. Dr. Raphael Medoff is with us, 16 books about Jewish history and former associate editor of American Jewish History. Um, it, it, would, would that OU, and not necessarily just 1898, but the first 10, 20 years or so, would it in any way resemble the OU of today? Um, in some ways, yes, but the difference really goes to the fact that the America of those days uh, does not really resemble the America of today in many report, important respects. And, and looking at it specific, specifically through the prism of the Jewish community and Jewish observance, I mean, think about an America in which, for example, there were very few packaged foods that had any kind of kosher certification. We have become very accustomed in our era to going into any supermarket, um, pretty much, in the United States and finding many, many products that bear hashkacha. And, in fact, each year there are more and more. So just keeping kosher is so much easier now than it was. But back in the, now we're talking the 1890s when the OU was first established, it was very unusual for any, any food products to have kosher certification. And those were, of course, the days when many people decided what was edible simply by looking at the ingredients on the, on the, on the label of an individual food product. So it was a whole, it was a whole different world just in terms of, of the food. Now, if we, if we talk about something um, like education, well, again, today we're used to the fact that we have, thank, thank God, we have a very uh, large and effective and impressive network of private Jewish day schools. But in those days, there were, in fact, very few. So most Orthodox Jewish kids went to public school. They didn't really have a choice. And in public school, they were subjected to all sorts of influences that we would consider um, unacceptable today, um, including things like being pressured to, for example, sing Christmas songs when that time of the year came around. So it was a very different America. It was a very different American Jewish community. Uh, And the OU really had its work cut out for it. Yeah, there's no question about that. Um, did they drift into the whole kashrus, uh, you know, industry, or was it a you know a conscious effort that was made to build the organization with kashrus, you know, as a as a strong part of it? How, how did that all occur? Well, interestingly, the the major expansion of the OU's kosher certification came at the initiative of the women's division. Um, in the um, in the early 1920s, the president of the OU was Rabbi Herbert Goldstein of the West Side Institutional Synagogue. His wife, Rebetzin uh, Betty, Rebecca or Betty Goldstein, was the head of the OU Women's Division. And let's keep in mind, this was an era in American life when women were beginning to assume a greater, a greater role. And it was just 1920, of course, that women... Um, women got the right to vote. Right. Um, and in the 1920s, you had a number of, of developments in society that were changing women's lives in particular. I'm just talking about things like people beginning to have refrigerators in their homes, um, the availability of, of canned food and frozen food. These were all things that had not, had not um, been around previously. And so as these kinds of products and innovations became commonplace, so it, it freed up women 
to have more time to do things like become more involved in Jewish organizational, Jewish communal life. And so the OU Women's Division, which was established in 1923, um, ended up playing, t- took on, I should say, a number of, um, of important tasks, and, and among them was a, an effort by the women to bring about certification on more products. So precisely because they were in general, becoming more assertive, they also um, saw the need for more kosher-certified products just to make daily Jewish religious observance um, more feasible. So they began going to factories and um, and pressing the OU to send out more um, more uh, supervisors to to ensure that foods were kosher. And it was this pressure from the ground up, from really from the women and from the women's division of OU that influenced the organization to significantly expand the whole kashrut supervision uh, division of its work and really really was a turning point um, in terms of, of making kosher food certification a major uh, a, ma- a major new development in Orthodox life in America. And this is even before World War II? I, I know it started before World War II, but in terms of a real turning point, even before World War II or then? Right. right. The, this activity by the Women's Division was um, in the mid and late 1920s right. going into the 1930s. Now, in those days, because so few foods had had the OU symbol or any other certification. Um, each time there was a new product, it was like a major development. In my research, I came across an issue uh, of the OU's magazine, which was called Orthodox Union, mm-hmm. from 1935, in which there was a large advertisement proclaiming what it called an historic event for the Jews of America. What was this historic event? Well, a particular brand of ice cream, had, for the first time now, was going to have certification. <laughs> so... Sure, for you know, for Jews in America, 1935, well, that was a pretty, it was a pretty big development. Are you, imagine, are you, are you know, kidding? News like that today gets a big celebration. Well, imagine, <laughs> imagine, like say, like in the 1960s or 1970s, and let's say a Jewish community outside of New York, the opening of the first kosher pizza uh, parlor would, you know, be a, that would be a major development, and and we might chuckle about it, but on the other hand, the truth is that. It can, in turn, you know, an event like that can, in turn, affect social lives and and and, and community, the development of a community, um, in all sorts of ways. So, um, so it was. So that really was the turning point in the 20s and the early 30s when the OU started to really um, take the expand the the kosher supervision uh, activity. Dr. Rafael Medoff is with us. Um... 16 books about Jewish history and former associate editor of American Jewish History and director of the David Wyman Institute for Holocaust Studies, focusing on America's response to the Holocaust. Does does the OU as an organization, because we do read about certain organizations that were very involved uh, in terms of trying to save Jews and have, trying to get a, a collective Jewish voice heard in Washington during World War II, uh, does the OU f- fall anywhere in that category? Were they involved at all as an organization in that effort? If we're talking about the Holocaust years, um, there was very little Jewish lobbying in Washington. What we today call the Jewish lobby was didn't really exist as such. You didn't have any of the Jewish organizations with like a, a full-time office and staff in Washington um, until until well into the 1940s. So this was this was something new and different. Now um, there there was one major protests in Washington during the Holocaust when some 400 Orthodox rabbis marched 
to the White House in the autumn of 1943 to plead with President Roosevelt to uh, rescue Jews from the Holocaust. It was not at the initiative of the OU. Um, it was, in fact, at the initiative of the, the group I mentioned earlier, the Agudas HaRabbanim. In general, the Orthodox, the American Orthodox response to the Holocaust was much more vigorous and much, much more, um, it, was, it was considerably more substantial than a lot of the other Jewish community, the, the remainder of the American Jewish community. Um, but overall, there was not the kind of sustained and effective response from Jewish organizations like the kind we're used to today when there is something, let's say, when Israel is in danger and you have a, you know, a, a major uh, organized response from the Jewish community. So it was a different time when American Jews were just starting to feel like Americans and just starting to feel like they could participate in the political system in ways that we're used to now, like lobbying and demonstrations and so forth. Uh, and in the field of Jewish education, uh, you know, I asked you earlier about Kashrus, whether it was something they drifted into or something that was you know, purposely pursued. Uh, the area of Jewish education, they, they always looked at their role as educating Jews through the synagogues. And, uh, I mean, there were day schools, that, you know, some of which existed, as you mentioned, but that really wasn't under OU uh, jurisdiction. Did they try to reach the people and, and, and increase the amount of Jewish education through their synagogue programs? Well, one of the most interesting um, attempts at education, or what we today would like to call outreach, um, that, a, that one finds when reading about the early history of the OU, um, was an effort in the early 1900s called the Jewish Endeavor Society. And this was kind of like the de facto youth division of the OU. What they did is they established a number of shoals um, in Manhattan, but mostly in Manhattan, Lower East Side, uh, but also elsewhere in the, in the borough, which they called Young People's Synagogues. And these were specifically in- intended to try to reach out to young, um, young Jewish immigrants, um, who were drifting away from observance, but were still had some connection, and were still interested in having some affiliation. And the way they, they did it is they, they tried to make these, these young people's synagogues more, first of all, more aesthetically appealing. So when you walk in, you didn't feel like it was just some run-down tenement, but it, it, it felt more like a modern and um, you know, pleasing-to-the-eye type of, of, of establishment. They added English language sermons, and that was an innovation for, for New York in, in 1900, um, and again, something that, younger, that appealed to younger people. The, the most interesting aspect of, of this Jewish Endeavor Society, um, this sort of de facto OU division, was that they transformed the Shabbat Mincha service into the major service of, the, of, of Shabbat and of the week. And the reason they did that is because they, they faced an unfortunate reality where many of the immigrants um, were working on, on Shabbat morning, were right. in their stores and were conducting regular business on Shabbat morning. And part of the reason they were doing that is because in those days, um, the blue laws kept, uh, required all stores to be closed on Sunday. So it became um, economically impossible for a Jewish store to survive if they were closed on Sunday and also closed on Shabbat. So many of these Jewish shopkeepers would would open their stores on Shabbat morning, but by, by the end of the day, when, when most regular business would close, they would close up, and then they would come to Shul. So if, 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 you, wanted, if you wanted these, these immigrants to have a Shabbat experience that would be you know, as much of a Shabbat experience as possible, so the way they do it, to do it, they realize, 
was to make Shabbat Mincha a much bigger deal than it otherwise would have been. So this is an example of doing something which was recognizing the reality of the difficulties of life in America for Jewish immigrants, not going outside the parameters of halacha, but being flexible enough within um, the confines of halacha to, to recognize what people were facing and trying to give them a more Jewish experience than they would otherwise um, have enjoyed. Really fascinating. My father, who was a rabbi for quite a while, said the most important thing he uh, he learned when he got to the United States was the rules of baseball, because then he was able to relate to the youth and you mm-hmm. know, and get involved in what they were involved with, which, of course, right. you know, is exactly what you're saying in terms of trying to attract them. And today, by the way, I would say it's gone further, not just Shabbos Mincha, but it, it seems like every day of the week or night of the week, you know, we're thinking of innovative ways in the field of Kiruv and education to turn that specific time slot into something Jewish, into something meaningful for the young people. So it's really been expanded over the years. Right, and this again goes to this whole split between the resistors and the accommodators. So among the resistors, the idea of having English in a sermon was considered usser. And any, any attempt to adjust to American reality was considered a step down the road of assimilation. Right. Um, and it was left to the modern Orthodox, the, calling the accommodators, to try to, to take a different approach and to realize that Kirov um, could be done without compromising halacha. Now, in today's world, of course, the whole outreach or Kirov movement is somewhat different. While on the one hand, you still have the OU through, the, um, through NCSY as one of the major forces in outreach, on the other hand, you have um, the Lubavitchers, who right. under, under other definitions would qualify as resistors, because they come from the Haredi world, right. yet they too came to recognize that speaking to assimilated Jews in language they understand would be more effective than just declaring everything usser and shutting everybody out. Right. Unbelievable. Uh, great look. We really appreciate you spending this time with us and giving us a little uh, insight into the history of the OU. Dr. Rafael Medoff. He is um, uh, the director of David Wyman Institute for Holocaust Studies, focusing on America's response to the Holocaust, author of 16 books about Jewish history. I thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Dr. Rafael Medoff here at the Nahum Siegel Network. You're listening to the OU Jewish Reaction Show, and we'll continue with more coming up. This is the Nahum Siegel Network.
Let me pray, let me pray, just one prayer. Hashem, let me sing just one song. Hashem, let me live till the great morning comes, when the whole world will sing just one song. It's the OU Jewish Reaction Show here at the Nahum Siegel Network, and we're taking a look at the history of the OU uh, during this hour today. Uh, Rabbi Aaron Reichel is here. He's a New York attorney and author of The Maverick Rabbi, about longtime OU president by Herbert Goldstein, and administrator of the uh, Harry and Jane Fischel Foundation. Rabbi Aaron Reichel, welcome to the Nahum Siegel Network. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Uh, Rabbi Goldstein served as OU president from when till when? 1924 till 1931. Now, interestingly enough, a lot of people think he founded the OU because he was so closely associated with it. The only problem is he was eight years old when the <laughs> OU was founded in 1898. So he didn't found it, but he was an influential figure. Um, right. And so he, so he became president in his, uh, in his mid-20s, actually. It was very young, correct. It was, uh, it was unique. It was very unusual for there to be an American rabbi who was Americanized, Orthodox, and English-speaking and Americanized, there were hardly any. In fact, what I'd like to do today, if, if you'll allow me, sure. is um, go through a couple of misconceptions that, I'll, that I believe I'll correct, and anybody is free to challenge me uh, later on or whatever, and also to point out seven ways in which uh, the sh- sh- observance of the Shabbos was enhanced by the OU and its allies. Interesting. All right, which, which do you want to start with? Okay, so one is right off about... What I started with about Rabbi Goldstein being the uh, people thought he was the uh, the founder of the OU. Right. Um, it's because he did so much for it, especially the OU Kashrus and so on, and he was so closely associated with it that it, it sort of blurs the line as to what he accomplished in his own name and what in the name of the OU. Uh, in fact, in the Universal Jewish Encyclopedia, which came out in 1943, 
he was the one who was chosen to write the entry about it, even though he had long since stopped being the president. Interesting. Uh, what's another misconception? Okay, here we go. Um, well, here's something about the uh, people can't imagine the connection of the conservative Jewish Theological Seminary to the OU. Now, don't worry, I'm not going to create problems. <laughs> don't worry. Okay, what happened is, what people don't know is that in 1886, the now conservative Jewish Theological Seminary was opened, but completely orthodox. Ad Kedaytach, up to a point, it was founded by Sabata Marias and Rabbi Bernard Rachman, more about him later, uh, and it was considered so orthodox that the Agudas Harabonim, the European rabbis, was satisfied with them until the year 1902. The year 1902, Salman Shechter came, and then there was an upheaval, and it started moving towards conservatism. So uh, that certainly, uh, and, and, and also, the Agudas Harabonim, so they were originally, the OU, by the way, began in 1898, right. and uh, so Salman Shechter was two years later. A hundred days later, the people from the Agudas Harabanim left. So until then, they were still associated with what's now known as <laughs> the center of conservatism. And, and, uh, and at that point, they left and founded the Agudas Harabanim. What a difference a few years makes, huh? It's amazing, right? Rabbi Aaron, Rabbi Aaron Rachel is with us. Uh, okay, you wanted to mention seven things that are, what were they again? Seven areas in where Shabbos was advanced by the OU and its allies. Okay. Now, first of all, I'll just set the table a little bit sure. by telling you something. I opened the Jewish Press uh, on uh, September 15, 2006, and on the front page, I read something, to my amazement, there was an article by Dr. Yitzchak Levine mm -hmm. from the Department of Mathematical Sciences at uh, Stevens Institute of Technology. He does a column there about uh, notable Orthodox uh, people who were influential over the years. And I read something about somebody else, not my grandfather. Oh, by the way, Robert Goldson was my grandfather. Ah. So, <laughs> so, but, but this article was about somebody else. He was writing about somebody named Rabbi David Miller. And he began this page one article with the following quote from the Maverick Rabbi. Quote, no one can overemphasize the hardships that faced Orthodox Jews who merely wished to avoid violating religious Sabbath laws in the era of the six-day week that included early Friday evenings and entire Saturdays. Right. Orthodox Jews were effectively closed out of virtually any position in any business not owned by another Orthodox Jew. And of sheer necessity and the instinct for survival in virtually any job that did not involve self-employment, many otherwise pious Jews inevitably succumbed. And now let's hear... What, what did the OU do about it? Okay. Okay, the OU and, and its allies, because uh, very often the line is a little bit blurred. Um, okay, let's see. First of all, there was somebody by the name of Samuel Hofstadter. There was a famous historian, Richard Hofstadter. Uh, was a, uh, that was a, a nephew, I believe. So Samuel Hofstadter was a state senator, very much closely associated with the OU, and he advocated for the uh, legislation for the five-day work week. I'm not saying he alone did it, right. but uh, that was crucial in, uh, in helping with Sabbath observance. Okay, that's one thing. Okay. Then the OU set up a Sabbath employment bureau. As I mentioned, it was so hard for people to find jobs. I mean, there were, if somebody had a small uh, business, they could do that. So that was an area where they could help, help um, uh, people find jobs. They were already in the job listing department. Wow, I didn't That's realize right. that. That's right, very early on. In fact, in the, uh, you know, my Rabbi Goldstein was, uh, rose to prominence before the OU by the Institutional Synagogue, which is one of the, the founders of the concept of the Jewish Community Center, right. 
with the institutional synagogue. It's a whole long story about that. Maybe I could be another show and we could talk about <laughs> rather go through what he did with uh, the institutional synagogue and, and uh, building up the synagogue individually. What we know today is the West Side Institutional Synagogue, right? Now that's what it is. Right. Uh, that's actually overlaps with one of the misconceptions. When he began, it was called the Institutional Synagogue. Mm-hmm. That was in, in, founded in 1917. Only in 1937 did it break off, and there was an additional institution called the West Side Institutional Synagogue. Ah, okay. And they were very different. But again, I can't cover everything now. Right. So what I will mention, though, is that in 1917, when he first began, the very first issue, they had a, um, they had a, a, like a news, newsletter that the synagogue put out. And in the first issue of the newsletter, they already said a Sabbath Employment Bureau. Wow. So that's in the shul, separate from the OU. But again, the lines were merged because so much of what Rabbi Goldstein did was uh, in his own capacity and with, uh, with the OU because of... Uh, uh, Okay, now, let's see. Now, uh, so that's Employment Bureau. Then there was something called the Jewish Sabbath Alliance. Now, what's that? That was something that helped avoid, helped people avoid having to, taste, to take tests on the Shabbos. What? Even back then? Even back then. In fact, that was, in fact, I, you know, I used to tell people, I thought that Rabbi Goldstein was the one who, who you know, did really the concrete thing. I thought that the OU was mostly speeches before that and conventions. And this was one of the, I found out that the OU did a lot more than that. Yeah. And this was one of the things that the OU was involved in with a special organization, a sub-organization called the Jewish Sabbath Alliance. And, uh, okay, that's another thing. Then, um, let's see what else we have. Uh, we also have, now, his father, that, again, I mentioned that the OU and its allies. Right. Now, one of the people who was very active in the OU and in every other Jewish organization, practically, was Harry Fischel. Now, oh, you may have noticed when introducing me, yeah. I'm the administrator of that foundation. Right. Now, and a book just came out, uh, uh, and I just edited an augmented edition of the book about Harry Fischel. Now, he was instrumental in uh, fighting for Sabbath observance and, and setting an example. He, became, he was a self-made millionaire in a time when a million dollars was money. Right. Okay, we're talking about the 19, you know, early uh, this uh, the, in the 1900s, right. and he was uh, the mysterious nevish that he did, the self-sacrifice for himself to uh, remain Sabbath observant was legendary. I mean, I, I, I when I was at Yeshiva University, the graduate school, so they made a point of of saying what a what um, an example he was that when he became very successful in the in the construction business, that he hired people. To be uh, Shabbos, you know, to Shabbos Shabbos serve people. the Shabbos, right. and this was uh, uh, a tremendous achievement to to be able to hire so many other people, because in those days there was almost nobody else who could who could hire, was in a position to hire a lot of people. I believe that Lamport from the uh, Yeshiva University also did a similar thing. Is from the famous Lamport Auditorium, yeah, of course, at Yeshiva <laughs> University, the President's University. Right. So he did a, also a similar thing. <laughs> Now, also, there's something that uh, that it's like a tongue twister. Probably an, a sub or an organization that I challenge anybody to be able to just simply repeat the name of the organization. I just uh, looked it up now, just to make sure I get it right. It was called the League. Let's see, how does it go? The League for Safeguarding the Fixity of the Sabbath Against Possible Encroachment by Calendar Reform. <laughs> okay. Uh, challenge you, but the Shabbos could be over by the time you finish saying that. <laughs> That's true. Uh, now, uh, so what was that? Apparently, there was a, there was a movement to have uh, everything, you know, like with decimal system, so to have a 10-day work week. 
If that would happen, that would knock Shabbos off. And people would have a problem, observe, a further problem observing Shabbos, because it would come out in the middle of the week. And this was a serious thing. Now, by the way, I, I also, and so Rabbi Goldstein, among other things, was the president of, of that organization which fought it. And again, it, he was able to have such clout, partly because he was president of the OU for so long and, and uh, so closely associated with it. Later on, by the way, I read a, a fascinating book about uh, fighting for observance in, in the Soviet Union. It's a little bit of a, a tangent. There's somebody by the name of uh, uh, Rabbi Zilber, Yitzhak Zilber, and he wrote that they had that calendar form in the Soviet Union at some point. Wow. That made a problem for them, too. Hardly anybody ever heard of that. But uh, I, I was alert to it because uh, of what I knew about what Rabbi Goldstein was doing. Um, that was the league. That's right, the league for safeguarding and blah, blah, blah. Okay, now, in addition to that, there was something called the Jewish Endeavor Society. Now, that, that uh, overlaps one of, the, uh, one of the misconceptions I'm going to uh, clarify. Uh, probably most people never heard of the Jewish Education, what do you call it? Endeavor. The Jewish Endeavor Society. Hardly anybody ever heard of that, but they, I think they did hear of the OU and they did hear the Young Israel. Now, here's, here's what happened. In... in uh, one of the founders of the, of the Jewish Theological Seminary was Bernard Drachman. And Bernard Drachman, Rabbi Bernard Drachman, who, was, who later became the president of the OU during a period of about nine years. And he was also the dean of the Jewish Theological Seminary during the time when it was still kosher. Uh, and he got kicked out or pushed aside. He was still teaching there, but he was kicked aside as dean when Salman Schechter took over. Now, he started... This Jewish Endeavor Society. Now, what's the significance of that? It's mentioned some of It was considered like a, uh, like a youth organization of the OU. Now, by the way, there are many youth organizations that the OU had. NCSY was not the beginning of, 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 of youth uh, in the, of the OU. They had various uh, sub-organizations dealing with that on the college uh, campus and on high school called the Habonim and so on. And uh, so Bernard Drachman was among the founders of this uh, subgroup of the subgroup of the OU for, for young people. And by the way, one of the people who was active in this society, I hate to say it, was Mordecai Kaplan. Wow. Uh, the founder of Reconstructionism, right. who, who did terrible damage to uh, uh, orthodoxy. Uh, that's, that's a whole other subject. Now, it turns out that they were considered, I see the OU takes the credit for there being like a sub-organization of the OU, but a lot of the people, they were on the Lower East Side, and a lot of the people on the Lower East Side uh, then uh, sort of like merged into what eventually became the Young Israel. So, uh, but all that was with the, uh, starting with, with that organization. Now, why do I mention that now? I'm still getting back to the Shabbos observance. Right. Because one of the things that they did was, there, there was a time when people, it was so hard for people, even they were Orthodox, to observe the Shabbos. It was, people, I mean, really, they they did their best, but, but they had to survive. They didn't have the, the social, the, 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 uh, you know, those, the nets, you know, the, the safety nets of, of uh, welfare and all these things. And they had to survive. So a lot of people, uh, even though they really wanted to be Orthodox, but a, a lot of people even went to, you know, went to work on Shabbos. Mm -hmm. So, but, they, but the OU, uh, did, again, at that time, the Jewish Endeavor Society, had came up with the idea of focusing on mincha and making mincha into a big, uh, into a big Shabbos uh, get together observance, right. and so that the people could at least, even if they didn't come on Shabbos morning, 
but they could be involved mincha time. And this was a, a big contribution to keeping things going until until the situation came better for Sabbath observance. Rabbi Aaron Reichel is with us. We're talking about the history of the OU with concentration on the period of time of OU president Rabbi Herbert Goldstein in the late 20s. All right, that's five, I believe, out of seven. Am I right? Uh, something like that. Okay. Uh, now, then there was the... the uh, the Friday night forums. Now, this was Rabbi Goldstein did actually at the institutional synagogue, but again, it, it was uh, the lines merged because he had so many of these uh, Orthodox people there, and um, so he would have forums on Friday night for people. But the situation was so bad that that not only was it you know to get people who worked during the day at least they could come friday night so so they they really uh, out of the shabbos even they had it at both ends they were able to get people to be involved in in the in the spirit of the shabbos they would have sermons friday night whoever heard of that nowadays you can't you can't get people to listen to a sermon shabbos morning <laughs> can you imagine sermons friday night but that's what they had in those days you know they didn't have the internet and everything else so people had more patience for that and of course, you know, whatever else associates Miros and everything else that they associate with, with an Onik Shabbos, they would have Friday night. And that was for many people uh, the main uh, connection to it. So uh, those were, let me see, uh, those do come out to, you know, to, to seven, I believe, uh, if you count that. Okay. So that's about Sabbath observance. Now, uh, there were so many other things that the, that the OU did all, all along. Now, uh, let's see. We'll get to, oh, oh, okay, now one thing is, I wonder how many people can make the connection between the OU and YU, okay? Now, there is some connection. I could chance you, most people would never know it, but uh, I don't know if it's fair to say if you want to guess what connection there was, why the OU was, was essential for YU. I'm trying to think just from the history that I know. Okay. Um, leadership, same leadership. Uh, right, right, overlapping leadership. Right. That's right. But now, listen to this. Listen to this. This is. Uh, you'll find this. Let me see. This would be in the uh, Universal Jewish Encyclopedia. So I'm not just making this up. Of course, although it was written by Rabbi Gosin. Now, the union. Uh, the uh, let's see. How's it go? In the 1920s. The union guaranteed the regents of the state of New York mm. a productive income on $500,000 during the first five years of the existence of Yeshiva College. Now, if not for that, they wouldn't have been able to get the license. Yeshiva University could not have gotten a license without that guarantee. And that guarantee was given by the OU by Rabbi Goldstein, when he was president. And the OU did not have that money at that time. Now, the, the thing was that this was the way that, that Rabbi Goldstein did If something had to be done, they, they would do it, whether they had the money or not. The, the attitude was something had to be done. Somehow or other, they'll get the money. Somehow or other, if necessary, because it was as a guarantor, it wasn't actually, you know, to pay for it. And this was something, this was something that, that came up 
time and again in Rabbi Goldstein and in Harry Fischel in, in the way they operated. Now, so now also Yeshiva University when it began, people were talking about you know raising money for it, maybe a million dollars, and they two million dollars. They thought Harry Fischel was insane when he said <laughs> they were going to go for five million dollars. <laughs> so they didn't have it at the time, but you have to think big. And and when it's something you know if you feel that something's important, then you just have to you, you just have to do it. And um, and this is something that was done for Yeshiva University. Okay, we're getting a little bit uh, yeah. uh, far afield with that. But just the concept was that it was the OU, the OU's backing, that made Yeshiva University possible. All right, a few minutes left. Um, is, is it the times that make the man, or is it the man who makes the times? Tell me about Rabbi Goldstein being in that position during that era. Well, the, the supply and demand was very different at that time. Now, you have a big pulpit, a big pulpit rabbi, so you can command huge salaries now to have a big pulpit. And a lot of people are fighting for the chance to have a big pulpit. In those days, there was nothing. There was, uh, you know, there, there, were, there were no American rabbis hardly. So Rabbi Goldstein originally was going to be a lawyer. Right. He, and then he decided, you know, he said to himself, you know what, there are enough Jewish lawyers around. There aren't enough, you know, uh, Americanized rabbis. And so he, he decided that, based on the supply and demand, this was something needed. And, th- and they filled the void. There was a tremendous void for Yiddishkeit. It was before the, the world, you know, the, the influx of World War II and so on. And there were so many voids in Yiddishkeit. It was so hard for people to be, to be a Jew. There was, you know, without all these things that were now taken for granted. I should mention also that there was this organization, Yavna, which was like a, an independent subgroup of the OU. And a book was written by, about Yavna recently also. And you should look for that, the greening of American Orthodox Jewry or something like that. But that was like an incubator uh, for so many of the things that we take for granted now. And that was real, technically was independent from the OU, but it was a campus-based organization from coast to coast. And it, but the OU gave it space, office space. And uh, just anybody will look about that, or a book of you I wrote that's in tradition about that, and they will see that all these things, that so many things that we take for granted today were not around 100 years ago and were even not around, uh, around the 1960s when Yavna began. Uh, again, it's, it's a, a kind of an offshoot informally of the OU, even though technically independent. Well, was so, it Rabbi Goldstein's uh, OU presidency was a voluntary position, a lay leadership position? Oh, not only that. Oh, I, I should mention something very important. Oh, there's so much to say. The, as far as the... Um, the OU Kashrus, oh my gosh, I didn't even get to that. Okay, the uh, yeah, the OU Kashrus was founded. You know that he helped found it. There were all kinds of um, of uh, challenges at that time, and uh, and what they had to do, they had to fight all kinds of fights. Not again, they had to fight. There were laws just for the permission to have uh, kosher slaughtering. They had to fight. My Rabbi Goldstein set up uh, raids. He, he raided kosher butchers who were fraudulent. He raided them on Shabbos to catch them uh, being fraudulent and so on. Oh, and the key thing ah, is about the mashkichim. The main thing that makes OU so special, the OU kashra is so special, is that before that, if you hired a mashkiach, so the mashkiach couldn't be objective. They'd be objective, and he'd say, what you have is not kosher. They'd fire him. But with OU, since it's, it's through a central organization, if, they'd fire the, if they wouldn't want the mashkiach, so go to another uh, position. Right. That's one of the key things about OU Kashrus. That you are uh, hiring an organization, not an individual. That's right. And therefore, they, they, they could have integrity. And otherwise, it, it, there would be compromise. It would be, right, understood. His yeah. position as OU president was lay leadership or was a professional? 
Ah, that's unique. He was unique in that at that time, it started off there with some rabbis there, and later on it became only uh, lay leaders. And therefore, he was the only person in history to become pre- president of the RCA, Rabbinic Council of America, which he was a co-founding president of, by the way, a presidium of the Rabbinic Council of America. He was the only person to be president of the Rabbinic Council of America and the OU. Because uh, and later on it became an impossibility because uh, at some point they the, because once they had their Rabbinic Council of America, so they they the OU's leadership was only lay leaders. What was his salary at the institutional synagogue? Very low. In fact, uh, he was offered to have his salary doubled if he would take the position at the Shir of Israel, and he would have been the first Ashkenazic. Rabbi in Spanish and Portuguese synagogue. Before Rabbi Salvation came. So everything you see, history repeats itself. And he was offered a tremendous, everybody said it was a done deal. They thought he was offered a tremendous raise in order to do that. But he said he was going to stay with the young kids who couldn't afford anything, who had no money. They were his, he, he was with the, with the youth who had nothing. So he was paid very little at the beginning. But, uh, uh, and and he, he sacrificed that because he had a mission. And uh, there's all kinds of stories about that, how, how the people, when they heard that he would, they wanted to hire him away at, at the Spanish-Portuguese, which was then so prominent at that time, and, and, uh, and they, they made demonstrations to keep him there. They camped out in front of his apartment that he shouldn't leave. Unbelievable. And, Unbelievable. and he made that decision not to leave. Rabbi Aaron Reichel, he is author of The Maverick Rabbi, and uh, it's about the longtime OU president, Rabbi Herbert Goldstein, and he is administrator of the Harry and Jane Fischel Foundation. What a fascinating tale. Unbelievable. And as you said, there are so many tangents we can go on for hours and hours. It's just, by the way, who was the co-founding rabbi of the RCA with Rabbi Goldstein? Uh, um, you know, I don't recall. I don't recall if he yeah, I'm, I'm just curious. I'm not trying to put you on the spot. I'm just curious. Yeah, yeah. Well, okay. As I said, someday maybe you'll have me on another <laughs> time talk about Rabbi Goldstein and I'll you give go. you that answer. Rabbi uh, Reichel. I, I don't think that they're, they're household names. Yeah, that I'm uh, sure. I was just curious. Yeah, Rabbi yeah. Reichel, thank you so much for joining us today. Okay. It's my pleasure. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Rabbi Aaron Reichel, History of the OU, and in this case, through the eyes of the author of the book, The Maverick Rabbi, by longtime OU president, Rabbi Herbert Goldstein. Fascinating show for you today here at the Nahum Siegel Network. I want to thank our guests. I want to thank all of you for tuning in. I want to thank uh, everybody who uh, listens on our app, the NSN app. It's a phenomenal way to tune into the Nahum Siegel Network. OU Jewish Reaction Show here at NSN on the Nahum Siegel Network. <laughs>